Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. It is a true blessing to be able to connect with the top minds and strength each and every week and share stories, insights, and experiences on becoming stronger in every area of our lives. And now I want to do more for you. I want to invite you to join the exclusive private Facebook group of The Strength Connection. In this group, I share the biggest takeaways and lessons from these amazing conversations, as well as training and strength tips for pursuing mastery and fulfillment in life. This group is filled with individuals looking to take full control over their strength in their lives, and it's the perfect space to explore ideas and share your journey. You'll also get exclusive access to the Strength Connection Mastery Seminars. It's a deep dive into physical, mental, and spiritual training that you can begin using immediately. Just go to the Facebook groups, type in the Strength Connection, and you'll be accepted immediately. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you on the inside. And we are back. Dr. Allison, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to chat. This is going to be great. Oh, yeah. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Let's do it. Absolutely. Yeah. We talked uh, a few weeks back on the phone and just some of the background that you were giving me of the work that you've done is you in a lot of different facets. You've been a top level athlete, you're a soldier, and also a scientist, kind of all meld into one. So, uh, the work you've done with your book, Meathead, as well as the, the sleep strategy, there's so much exciting things we're going to dive into. Uh, so really, again, appreciate you taking the time. So of course. yeah, to kind of, to kick this off, you know, I always like to hear people's origin stories of how they found themselves in this world. So I know you're deep into the science as well as really the, the physical component of athletics. Did one kind of interest come before the other? Was it just you're an athlete starting and then kind of wanted to go into the scientific realm? No, excellent question. Yeah. So uh, I've been an athlete my whole life and I sort of grew up in a community where uh, your ticket out of town was being good at sports. Uh, so I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a famous ESPN 30 for 30 documentary about a lot of the athletes who come from Youngstown. Um, really? And yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's called Youngstown Boys. It's about the uh, relationship between Jim Tressel um, who I actually okay. personally know his uh, middle daughter, Carly Tressel, is a really good friend of mine. We've known each other since first grade. Oh, wow. Uh, and then if the infamous uh, running back for Ohio State, Maurice Claret, mm -hmm. who uh, he didn't go to my high school, but he went to a neighboring high school. Um, but where I grew up, Youngstown, especially like the era of uh, Jim Tressel and Claret was, uh, I mean, we, we, it was the most dangerous city at the time. So Youngstown had wow. the highest murder rate per capita in the entire U.S. It was even like higher than Camden, New Jersey in the wow. early 2000s. Um, and, you know, I was just like any other kid from Youngstown. I went to a crappy public high school. Um, you know, I, I'm lucky in that I was studious and disciplined uh, because otherwise uh, I can tell you right now, I, could, I would probably not be here right mm -hmm. now in this position. Uh, but just like everyone else in our community, you learned early on that like you established community and stayed out of trouble through sports. Mm. Um, I also had the, this like pursuit of high level training early on because both of my uncles, like many people in Youngstown were uh, professional boxers. So, uh, my uncle Jim, he used to take me to the, uh, local park all the time and do like suicide sprints. And, mm -hmm. you know, I used to punch the bag and lift some weights in its basement early on. That's awesome. Um, had wonderful mentors uh, who were coaches in high school. Uh, I know we talked a little bit about this. I also met this uh, coach named Dick Hartzell, who uh, was nicknamed the rubber band man. And actually Dick Hartzell is really the person who developed those um, strength bands that everyone uses today. Uh, many people don't know that he was the uh, like the power bands, like the stretch bands? Yeah, the power bands. Yeah. So he invented those. He created a whole program mm -hmm. around it that um, if you're from Youngstown or the surrounding area, you know about it. It's called jump stretch. So oh, wow. we used to like tie the bands around us and do back and forth sprints. We used to do uh, highly dynamic squats. Um, if you played Big Ten football during that time, you definitely worked with Dick Hartzell because he was working with Michigan, mm -hmm. Ohio State. Yep. Uh, all those big team uh, teams during that time. But yeah, so um, athletics drove my success, but that also, you know, focused, uh, helped me focus on being a scholar athlete too. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college. So um, I was lucky, went to Brown University. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, I just started taking neuroscience courses and I was, uh, even though I was competing in track and field at the time, it got me thinking like, 
wow, there's so much of athletics that is not to do with muscles. Like it actually has to do mm-hmm. with mental outlook and mindset. Yeah. Um, and, and was that, was that something you thought early on, like even like early in life, you're like, there's got to be more to this than just movement and muscles. Or was that something that really kind of excelled in your mind when you got into, into college? Um, I always knew mindset was everything, mm-hmm. but I think the, the principles behind mindset, I didn't really understand. So that's sort mm. of what drove it is like, I mean, I always knew in high school that like when my mind gave up, it was over. Um, not just, you know, being a track and field athlete, but I was a gymnast too. And, you know, oh, a, lot, okay. a lot of that, a lot of the best times, uh, meets and I had was when I just shut my mind off. Like as soon as I overthought a, a skill or a movement, you know, the, the competition mm-hmm. was over for me. Um, uh. but yeah, so that's how I got into it. And it just sort of, uh, morphed from there into, uh, you know, I really wanted to be an expert and, mm-hmm you know, the neuroscience of, uh, athleticism and, uh, you know, that's, it spurred me writing that book. And, uh, I've always tried to practice what I preach. So in order mm-hmm. to be an expert in the neuroscience of athleticism, I thought it was yeah. almost mandatory to be a good athlete too, but you yeah. know, that's, I grew up like, that's all I knew was being good at sports. You kind of picked the two like sports that the mind is so important to track and field and gymnastics. Cause I always think of yeah. like with team sports and you have a defense, it almost allows you that opportunity to not think because you have other things in mind that you have to kind of get into that flow. But in gymnastics, like you are there a lot of times in your own routine, you've practiced it a million times, but when it's go time, you got to get out of your own head. One of the first books that ever really inspired me was Dan Millman's way of a peaceful warrior. And, Oh yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. yeah and he talked about his time at, at uh, California in gymnastics and, you know, here and now, where are you here? Where, you know, what time is mm-hmm. it now? And focusing on that. So it's interesting that you pick those sports because it is such a mental side as well. Yep. No, absolutely. So I don't know if you know, I uh, pole vaulted too. So okay. uh, I, uh, and I still pole vault today. Uh, I went, there's a club nearby here in North Carolina. So, uh, mm-hmm. I tried to pole vault like at least once a week. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. But it, it, but it's true. It's like those sports. I mean, you can't ever practice enough. Like you constantly have to fine tune that muscle memory. Mm-hmm. The mind, the mindset side of strength and athletics is such an interesting topic. I've talked about it a lot, but it's almost, we talk about it so much in just theory where you've really dove into the science behind what's going mm-hmm. on in the mindset when you first started studying like the neuroscience behind the mental strength was it like a was it like an eye opener of like wow there's so much more going on than we actually think yeah absolutely so um when i wrote meathead at the time that the field was in its uh, nascency and uh, in fact actually my book was the very first on the market but you know i at the time was a a fellow. So it's not like I mm-hmm. had the, the time to market my book, um, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I'm, I'm happy that it's still like does fairly well, but um, in, in doing some background research for the book, I think the biggest thing I learned is the level of efficiency of the brain of an elite athlete that separates um, an elite athlete from an amateur. Like if you didn't know anything about two individuals uh, and you put their brain under uh, a neuroimaging machine, the brain of an elite athlete at resting state would be vastly different than that of an amateur. And that those areas of the brain that um, ought, like need to be recruited in order for movement and complex muscle um, movement patterns to happen mm-hmm. would be much more deactivated or less activated at baseline. But mm. in the face of stress, they're able to you know, rapidly activate. So that's sort of the difference is like an elite athlete spends its time in, you know, like an engine of a car, just an idle, but it can go from zero to a hundred, just like that. Whereas uh, an amateur athlete, it, it, it not only requires more recruitment of different brain areas, it's just, it's slower to react, which mm-hmm. I mean, if you just look at a reaction time of an elite athlete, right. Versus just somebody from the street, like, 99.9% of the time, the reaction time of an elite athlete is going to be far superior than the average person. Right. That's, inter- that's interesting that you tested it and researched it at the resting time, not just in performance from there. Yeah. So is that coming more from 
like the routine and the repetition of practice so much, or is it more, because we talk a lot about fast twitch muscles and building strength and stuff. And obviously Mm -hmm. that's important, but is that even coming more because an elite athlete has so many more reps under their belt of what they've done? Um, No, it's actually just basic, what we call, we call it bioenergetic. So like basic energy expenditure and energy conservation. So you know, over time, the body learns to adapt, like, oh, I have to exhaust all these energy resources today. So when I'm not active, I'm going to be replenishing glucose and replenishing fats. And I'm not going to be expending this much, you know, brain power, which thrives on glucose. So Mm -hmm. um, that's really all it is, is efficient uh, energy conservation. Our bodies have a immense way of, of doing that. And, you know, we see that a lot of times, and this is something that's been studied when you look at military populations. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, those guys that go through those really enduring selection courses, like ranger school, which yeah. uh, takes about two years for your body to recover, quite honestly. It makes sense. Your body, after even after ranger school, we find um, goes into this state of energy conservation and it actually makes those individuals uh, more prone to, to weight gain or to like hold on to, to fat and weight because their bodies are still in this mode of survival, right? Because they spent uh, pretty much nine months in hell, like mm. not eating, not sleeping. And so their body for the rest of their life is sort of, has permanently rewired itself to think that I must survive. Therefore I must, you know, retain fat and all of that. That's, that's so crazy. You think, well, a lot of times we think of recovery of like, Oh, I need a day or I need a week. And you're talking about like a year, you know, like years. years. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah, There's, this is like some new research where, cause yeah, I don't know if you know a lot about military selection schools, but not Not everyone makes it the first time through a lot of people get what we call recycled. So, Mm-hmm. Um, on average, the course should take you about, well, six months to 18 months to complete, um, ranger school is like six months. If you're a green beret or a Navy SEAL, that takes like 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, but less than 50% make it through the first time. So for every time you get recycled, you're adding on another six months to that school. So if you got recycled three times, hypothetically, it's going to take your body like eight to 10 years to recover from that. Um, and we see that a lot of times with uh, a lot of the guys who go through these selection courses have just low levels of baseline testosterone. They, they lose mm-hmm. this ability to uh, produce, it, produce and maintain physiologically healthy levels of testosterone. Wow. What's, go- what's going on there with that? Is it just the, I mean, the recovery, obviously it's like you're depleting your body so much. And it's like you said, it's in survival mode, but why is it that like going into it again, it takes so much longer afterwards? Do we know that information? No, that we don't know. I mean, I know sleep deprivation has um, a big part of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, they've done studies to show that if you're getting less than 70% of your daily sleep needs that that can immediately and acutely drop your testosterone by 50% Mm. and it stays reduced until you get adequate sleep again. So that's part of it. But then also it's just like the heightened sympathetic, you know, nervous system response. Right. Um, But if you think about it too, a lot of these guys who go through selection courses, they go from that right to combat, right? So you have, you have the, underlying stress of combat too, um, mm-hmm. to, to add uh, on to that. Yeah. It's, it's always fascinating to talk. Cause when you get to that level of performance that you're doing, where you talk about elite athletes or military, I mean, such a high stress environment, the recovery is so vital and important. And reminds me of a story that I think it was Eddie Cohn, the famous power lifter. And he would, I forget where I heard this story, but like in between lifts, he would actually like take naps. He like trained himself so much to recover where he would actually like take like 10 minute naps and then wake up and lift again because he trained Mm -hmm. his body to drop that uh, into recovery so fast from there. It's like, wow, like that's a, an elite level type of recovery and then turn on and get ready to lift. You know, for him is 75% was, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds, you know, from there, but it's incredible how quickly you can, you need that recovery time more as you push your body. No, that is incredible. I actually never knew that. And I will use that uh, antidote uh, in the future. Um, 
I'd love to see his HRV. Like if he's able to rapidly take a nap after doing a, a, mm-hmm. a heavy lift, like Batman probably has an insane HRV. Yeah, we well, it's you, we were talking about like specific powerlifting because it's such a weird sport. You know, you go in, you lift, but then it's like five to fifteen minutes of sitting around and resting. And they said the elite of the elite, they don't listen to music, they don't jump on their phone. There's no stimulus. It's like, and he actually mm-hmm. got to the point where he could put himself to sleep. It's like, wow, like you're taking uh you're taking your game to a whole nother level of doing that. Yeah. No, I I believe that too because I I mean. You know, I've been around the CrossFit community for about mm-hmm. 12 years now at the elite level. And now I'm back with the general population programming. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's the big difference you see between the elites and like, you know, the regular gym goers is like they they're we're very methodical between lifts. Like I don't even bring my phone into the vicinity of, of when I train and neither do any of my teammates. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's a very different like zen-like recovery period that you you typically don't see when you you know go to the normal uh general Mm -hmm. population classes yeah how did you get into the the crossfit games with the army because you're on the army fitness team for crossfit right are you still competing there i know you have before uh i was so i just uh it was a three-year rotation for Mm -hmm. um the officers um so i just rotated off the team um so and i got restationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, so I've been doing CrossFit for about 12 years. Uh, Actually got in it through my high school friend, Dan Bailey, who's a a really good CrossFitter. Yeah, I know the name. uh, uh, So anyway, I I got lucky in that, like I was, you know, old school games athlete early on, like uh, went to the games in 13 and 15 on a team, um, made it to individual regionals, 11, 12, and 14. Um, but yeah, I, a a few years ago, the army decided that they were going to use CrossFit as a recruiting mechanism makes sense, right? Because, uh, one of the biggest things the army struggles with is, uh, muscle, like skeletal muscle injuries. Um, Mm. it's the number one compromise to military readiness. And so they thought if, you know, you can get quality recruits who, um, focus on, uh, proper strength and conditioning, proper nutrition, proper sleep early on, then they're going to be less costly to the army mm-hmm. in the long haul. Um, so yeah, they basically scouted for people in the army who had been to the games, who had been to regionals. Um, so that was what was unique about the first team was like all of us had either competed in the CrossFit games or regionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's becoming a little bit more difficult to find that talent. Uh, and it makes sense because the sport of CrossFit has evolved so rapidly. Yeah that even having a full-time army job where you have integrated physical training throughout the day can't even make the cut. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, we basically were, um, if you've ever heard of the world-class athlete program, uh, we were sort of, we were modeled off of that. So uh, the world-class mm-hmm. athlete program, they have uh, active duty military who train and compete full-time in Olympic sports at the Olympic training center. Um, and so our, our team was modeled off of that. Unfortunately, we weren't in, uh, Fort Carson. We were part of the recruiting command with, mm-hmm. um, there's another team, the marksmanship team. Uh, they had like five people complete in the Olympics last year. They're also in the recruiting command, but yeah, we, we were full-time athletes. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we had a Nike contract through, uh, the army's, uh, uh West point channels, mm-hmm. uh, we competed all over the world until COVID ruined that. Yeah. Uh, we still oh, competed after COVID, just not, didn't have a lot of spectators. Yeah. I'm sure it's such a blast with the team aspect of it. I had, um, Carrie Pierce on a few weeks back, who's, uh, you know, the American CrossFit, yep. you know, champion from there. And the, the dedication of time needed in order to stay at the individual level of that, she said, it kept getting more and more every year until yep. eventually she's like, all right, I, I hit the podium. I reached here. Like, I don't need to do this anymore. So it's amazing how quick can that, that was just a few years ago from there. So mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing how quickly athletic development is evolving specifically now. Have you seen like the change in like the, the training that they've done in the military since you first got started into what they do now for physical fitness? Um, no, I haven't quite mm-hmm. honestly. So I know they just like, uh, Last week we, was the inaugural uh, launch of this new program called the Holistic Health and Fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, 
where basically they're modeling off what special forces already had, which was modeled off what professional teams do. They're going to have these very like professionally well done training facilities with not just like collegiate and professional level strength and conditioning coaches, but also sports medicine, doctors, physical therapists, everything. Um, and so I'd like to think and get like that in a few years. I, I will say that a lot, there's a lot more functional fitness and like rogue and powerlifting mm-hmm. and traditional weightlifting equipment available now. But honestly, I think it all, it comes down to commanders. And if you're a commander who really values PT, um, I'll tell you when I was in command, like we used to do, I wouldn't say mandatory PT, but over lunch I would work out and I'd have a lot of soldiers work out with me. So we'd have like, mm-hmm. you know, workouts over lunch or in the afternoon just to take a break. Um, but I think that's really what it comes down to is if, you know, leaders being leaders. So mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. It might be a big waste of money or it might be, uh, worthwhile. You know, it's so, it's like the medical, it's in a lot in the medical field. Like I had some partnerships with orthopedics before and the ones who stayed physically fit and took care of their bodies, they were the ones that were always referring into the fitness community. The Mm -hmm. ones that didn't value it as much, it just, it never, you know, came out and it is. So it always starts from the top. So if you're a leader at all, like, you know, practice what you preach and then it just goes to everybody else. Oh, I 100% agree. I mean, that's why I like, you know, sometimes I get frustrated in the science community because, um, for example, like I, I'm a big believer in practice what you preach. Like mm-hmm. I not only uh, research the neuroscience of athletics, but I'm also a sleep researcher. Yes. And I, I make sure I like my sleep is, is like protected as much as I can. I know sometimes like if I had to do night operations or like something like, sure, I'm not going to get sleep, but I'm going to get sleep before that. Mm-hmm. Uh but it is like shocking to me in the research field. Uh, you see this less in the strength and conditioning community, but you definitely see it in like the neuroscience physiology community where you have people up there talking about elite athletics who maybe they used to be an elite athlete, but now they basically probably haven't worked out in like 20 years right. and <laughs> McDonald's every day. So uh, I always, I get, I was just like, shake my head. It, it, actually, the sleep field is no better. Like there's so many like, really, mm-hmm. like esteemed experts who, mm-hmm. you know, they're lecturing yeah. about the comorbidities related to sleep apnea and right you know, sleep disorders. And I'm like, yeah. well, that, I mean, yeah. you're pretty much are a statistic too. So I guess maybe you are practicing what you preach, yeah. but it's, is, is that kind of just naturally where the, I guess somebody who's more um, interested in that field just kind of approaches where it's more of the, the knowledge and the research of it, which is a lot of times probably not active from there. Are you more of the outlier of the, Oh, the I'm 100% world? the outlier. So that's actually, I mean, honestly, that's why I love to actually meet. Okay. It's, it's, it's 100% true. Like, mm-hmm. Like it, I was the outlier, you know, people were like always shocked that I used to get work done because they always just assumed I trained all day. And I'm like, well, you can do both. Like Mm -hmm. I don't have a long commute. I chose to live close to work and close to the CrossFit gym. So I don't have to spend two hours a day in a car or I don't go to happy hour, you know, every other day. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah I think it's all about priorities and yeah. people just don't prioritize and yeah. Well, it's so funny about gaining knowledge, right? It's like uh, Pavel Tatsulin has a great line in Strong First of, I forget where he took it from, but you know, maybe it works in practice, but does it work in theory? It's like a lot of yeah. times in academics, right? It's so focused on building the knowledge and gaining the knowledge, but then not mm-hmm. actually applying it and seeing how it works. So you keep getting more and more knowledge, which can, yeah. knowledge, knowledge is power. I understand that. But if you're not applying it and practicing it from there, and especially with something like, like sleep and stuff yep. and, and that type of research, what was it? I know you're a sleep strategist and that's been a big field that you've done with that and fatigue management. What was it about yep. the world of sleep that like inspired you to, to kind of research more? I, everybody knows it's important, but to really dive into the, the research and the science behind it, what was it about that? Like one more time. So honestly, it's just from being an athlete, like, uh, when I, so growing up, I was, I was a two sport athlete all year. Uh, I was training five or six hours a day in high school. So I did gymnastics, which is year round. I did dance. 
Uh, and then I did track and field. And then my track coach also made me do cross country just so it, like she made everyone who, who, if you did track, you had to do cross country, regardless if you were a distance runner or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so between that and my, uh, I was valedictorian of my high school, like, and I attribute both of those things of being like all American and then a valedictorian to getting good sleep. Mm-hmm. So sleep had always been of interest to me and it's always fascinated me. And then when I was in college, um, so one of the world's experts in sleep research was at Brown University and I took her sleep class um, my sophomore year. And admittedly, I enrolled in her class because it was an easy A. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the athletes, we, we sort of always did that. Like we always took rocks for jocks as we called it. And uh, there's an oceanography <laughs> course. There's a Russian literature course. And for whatever reason, this psychology of sleep course is like, you didn't have to do a lot of work. There it is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, I I took it admittedly for that reason. Mm -hmm. And I just fell in love with it. Like, I didn't know there was a whole research behind sleep. But then I, like, first week of class, I went up and I was like, Dr. Karskadin, can I work in your lab? Not knowing at the time that, one, she... So she actually was nominated for the Nobel Prize um, a few years ago because I'm sure you've heard a lot of school systems have delayed the start of high school times in order to better correspond with like a teenager's sleep rhythm. I know they've talked, I know I've heard they've talked about it. I didn't know if if a lot of schools were actually trying to apply it. Yeah. So a lot of states have, um, but that's, that was all based on Mary's research. Uh, So Mary has spent like, 40 years just researching this and um yeah she got nominated a few, a few years ago for the Nobel Prize and fortunately she did not get it uh but yeah I didn't know at the time I was working for like not just a rock star but she was the first female in the field of sleep research in the history of the field so like wow. I got very lucky yeah. Um, you know, it's and- funny. It's funny. I was in this world of strength and conditioning for so long and I, and you like you go in, okay, sleep is important for recovery and stuff, but then I found Matthew Walker's information. Yep. I saw a podcast with him and then read his book and realized because mm-hmm. the one thing that he said that I didn't realize was when I was when you travel, he says like half your brain is almost like awake because you're in it a is, threat detection yeah. type system. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. Like I actually just came back from a trip after seeing that podcast. Like it was like, I got to bed at the right time and stuff, but still you just didn't feel like you were all there. And that mm-hmm. was just like, wow, this guy must be onto something. And then started to understand yeah. more of the science behind sleep that was going on. Yeah. So small world, uh, my best friend that worked in Mary's sleep lab with me, uh, Jared Salatin, he was Matt Walker's uh, PhD student. So I actually wow. know Matt very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, so the reason that exists is because you see that in other mammals. So it's called um, unihemispheric slow wave sleep. Um, so uh, a lot of prey, or a lot of prey will do that. Actually, ducks are, are really well known for doing that, where um, the ducks in the center of a flock, uh, they'll sleep fully. So both hemispheres of their brains will be asleep. Uh, but the ducks surrounding the outside, the eye that is open, that's the opposite side of the brain that's awake. So they exhibit that as well. Uh, dolphins do it. So, you know, a lot of mammals uh, that are exposed to the elements in marine life mm-hmm. um, exhibit this as well. So wow. it, it it's evolution. It, it's it's a crazy, it is a crazy thing because sleep is one of those strange things, right? Because when when you think about it, it shouldn't be something we need to do. Like we're built for survival, right? And we go into this zone for eight hours a night where we're completely you know, out of it, like anything can come and, you know, attack us from a hunter gatherer type, you know, perspective of it, but it's so vital for us. And everything. you mentioned something earlier, and I think I only caught a glimpse of it, that you said the testosterone can drop down so much from just due to a lack of sleep. Like, is that a certain like number of hours or is it cumulative yep. over a period of time or? Yeah. So these studies, um, it wasn't done on one occasion. It's done on multiple occasions and, uh, and we've applied it now, uh, downrange. Uh, we did a study with the Rangers a few uh, years ago and we published on it where we found that their switch from daytime to nighttime operations did the same thing. Uh, and it makes sense. Uh, again, going back to basic bioenergetics and energy conservation, 
so when you sleep at night, uh, as soon as we hit deep, slow wave sleep and REM sleep, which you know Matthew Walker talks about in his book, um, we go into a completely anabolic state. Um, so that's where the replenishment of ATP happens. That's where the release of growth hormone and testosterone happens. We don't release any anabolic hormones after we train. Like even if you're doing like the katsu method of, you know, hypertrophy or you're doing like uh, off and on heat and cold uh, stress, you know, all those different things that are known to stimulate mm. hypertrophy, you don't get testosterone release from that. It, your body remembers that. And then if you get sleep that night, will then increase testosterone release as a result. Um, but yeah, if you don't, if you don't get restorative sleep, then you don't get testosterone. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why like people who have sleep disorders, so somebody who has sleep apnea where they have this inability to reach these restorative sleep states, that's why these guys are at extreme risk for um, low testosterone and oftentimes mm -hmm. have to go on uh, testosterone Like TRT, yeah. Yep, exactly. Wow. You mentioned this before when we spoke because I know a lot of these things we talk about like sleep apnea and stuff, like these are some things that, we can control in some standpoint, obviously, if you stay at a healthy body weight, I think that helps a lot. But you said there's also a genetic component to this mm -hmm. too, where people can be prone to that. Can you speak a little bit on that? I forget exactly what you said. Yeah. So that's actually my, my main background uh, is uh, sleep genetics. Um, yeah. So there's a series of genes that determine what we call a sleep set point. Um, I actually, when I, when I was in Atlanta, uh, I spent five years discovering one of these genes in skeletal muscle. Uh, so there's this uh, gene called BMOL1. Uh, it's part of what drives circadian rhythms. And when you manipulate or have altered expression of it in skeletal muscle, it can actually uh, decrease your sleep drive, meaning that you require less sleep. And then when you are exposed to sleep deprivation, recovery time is faster. Um, there's another gene called DEC2, D-E-C2, uh, that is the short sleep gene. And this has been found, and uh, we think it's, it's pr primarily in high performers. So US presidents, which are historically short sleepers, mm -hmm. CEOs like Elon Musk, probably have some like he might be an alien so he's yes he's not a good yes one. yeah <laughs> no i think he has the deck two mutation uh but these are people who are very lucky and that they only need two or four hours of sleep per night and that's all they need and they have no performance decrements the next day um what? now of course there's like genetic trade-offs there's probably because mm -hmm. that's what we find like even if you are superior genetically and in, in one facet that doesn't mean you are in another um, the okay. best example I can give you from our research, um, cause we've done this a lot with caffeine dosing protocols and we've published like 10 or so papers on it is people who are resilient to sleep deprivation, meaning like you're sleep deprived, you have to stay up late, but you don't have performance decrements during mm -hmm. that time are typically very tolerant to caffeine. So they like you know, to reach a higher level while they're sleep deprived, caffeine really doesn't do much. Okay. Uh, but somebody who's sensitive to sleep deprivation, meaning they have like huge degradations in performance across sleep deprivation, mm -hmm. caffeine will help them stay at their baseline because they're sensitive to caffeine. Uh, and so we, we see this very often in nature where uh, we call them genetic trade-offs. Wow. So with one of the genes, the first one that you mentioned where somebody can get two to four hours sleep and it's like they fully recovered, you know, from there with that one gene, are they, they just don't need to go through all the sleep cycles to get all the recovery or like what so else is going on? They go through the sleep cycles. They just go through it very rapidly. Mm -hmm. And then also, um, basically it comes back down to bioenergetics. So, uh, what drives how much sleep you need? is ATP and adenosine. Like mm -hmm. that literally is what drives it. So if you're someone who doesn't have like a high amount of adenosine need because of how you're biologically wired, then you don't require that much sleep because it doesn't take much sleep to replenish your adenosine reserves. Unlike somebody like me who needs eight hours. Right. Uh, I have 
huge adenosine reserves. And so I need to spend eight hours and a lot of that, like at least 40% of that in restorative sleep to replenish my ATP and adenosine. Right. So the, those people who like, they have that full recovery over four hours, if they sleep for like eight hours, is it even going more? Are they like doubly recovering or is it pretty much they're just done at the four and it really doesn't matter if they sleep anymore? Well, so that's an interesting concept because mm-hmm. that's what we do in our lab. We do this concept called sleep banking, mm-hmm. um, but usually it's paired with sleep deprivation. Okay. Um, and I think that's one of the things that hasn't really been done with this short sleep mutation is they've looked at what we call spontaneous sleep um, under normal conditions, but not under conditions of stress. Because it might be like, honestly, that might be their genetic trade-off is like, say they uh, go from needing two hours of sleep to getting zero hours of sleep. They might be like the world's biggest danger during that time. Mm. You know what I mean? Like their level of focus and ability to like make decisions might be completely, um, at at completely dangerous levels. So, and that's something we don't know because we haven't studied it enough and, you know, it's Mm -hmm. such a rare genetic mutation. So it's right. That'd be hard to, Sure. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, especially in our culture, I mean, I think we're a sleep deprived culture overall. Mm-hmm. You can probably speak to the stats a lot better than I can, but I b- believe it's like we, we sleep an hour and a half less now, like than 20 years ago from yep. a lot of different aspects of it. And what's funny though, is so many people think, oh, I'm fine on five hours sleep, or I'm fine on six hours sleep. Um, Cause cognitively we can still function. We can still drive a car. Maybe we can do our work. We can go through our routines Yep. But but we're not really fully recovered. Is the only way really to do that is to do like a blood work and see kind of where our ATP is and adenosine and all that work? Yeah, I mean, that's really, uh, and I wouldn't even say this test now or at a high fidelity. So mm-hmm. we, because um, it's actually really, really hard to measure ATP and adenosine. Is Trust it? me, I, I spent many years trying to do it in freaking mice. It's <laughs> And I don't think the technology has improved much just because um, it's such a, it's such a vital, but it's such a small molecule mm-hmm. that you have to have crazy sensitive instruments. Um, but uh, we do have some good indicators. Um, I do think the anabolic profiles uh, like testosterone, growth hormone, uh, those are good indicate like uh, indicators of ATP and adenosine recovery because um they're only released when you have ATP and adenosine replenishment. Mm, gotcha. Can you train yourself into like performing better under less sleep? Cause I know like with Rangers or you hear from seal training and stuff where they go through these times where they're not sleeping at all. It's like part of mm-hmm. the, the process of it. Can you actually like get better at performing under like less sleep? Because obviously in the military, that must be something that, is just part of the job. Like if you're going on missions and you just, you don't have time just to sit back and mm-hmm. get six to eight hours all the time. No. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm happy you asked that question because we've actually done this in Rangers. So mm-hmm. we, uh, we do a lot of work with the Ranger battalion and we did that um, during the, the cadre who lead the, the Ranger uh, school, particularly the most treacherous phase, which is up in the mountains in Georgia. Um, so we, we piloted this app that you could actually download on your phone called Peak Alert. Uh, it's a caffeine dosing app. So what it does is it looks at your baseline reaction time and then based on your baseline reaction time under conditions of sleep deprivation um, or say you just want to optimize your waking performance, uh, it will give you a precise caffeine dosing schedule based on your um, reaction time. So. We, of course, validated it in the lab, but then we wanted to validate it in the field. Uh, And actually, our field group were these ranger cadre because they do this walk with the cadets where they're up for over 40 hours. Um, Mm -hmm. And all, they're about up for about 60 hours at a time. And, you know, I can tell you, like, these these dudes, they've been in the military a long time. They're all alpha. Uh, They used to, like, brag about how they can do anything under sleep deprivation. And these simple tests of reaction time just humbled them because really? they realized, I mean, the father of sleep medicine, uh, he just passed away. His name is Dr. William C. DeMent. Like he said it perfectly mm-hmm. is sleepiness makes you stupid. That's right. It, it makes you stupid. Yeah. 
I, I heard that, I think from that, uh, that podcast I listened Walker. to with Dr. With Dr. Walker, yeah. he said, yeah. cause he was talking about, I believe the, the medical field when you're in residency and it's like, you're up for all hours of the night and actually driving mm-hmm. home after a 24 hour shift is equal to having so many drinks and just walking. Mm-hmm. It's like you're drunk driving from there. Yeah. And it's this sleep issue that's going yeah. on. Well, they've actually done those studies. So, um, I don't know if Dr. Walker did, but we used to do those in Dr. Karskadden's lab. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to do these studies where we would actually like have one group drink alcohol. Like they would drink two vodka tonics and then they played this driving simulation game. And then you'd have a separate cohort who would just be sleep deprived. And literally it's a one for one batch, like wow. X hours of sleep deprivation equal one bo- vodka tonic. Like yeah. it's, it's a fun day at the office. I got to say that was such a fun thing. All right. This is what we're doing today. It just seems like such a fun thing to go in yeah. and do and just, and check that out. That's so interesting. Yeah. It was always easy to recruit for the alcohol studies. Cause it's like, Oh, get paid yeah. $2,000. Just sit around and drink vodka yeah. tonics and you know, drive a race car. Oh God. That's so funny. Well, you know, it's one of those things with sleep deprivation. You think that that's something that you could do, but probably it's, I mean, everybody's probably done an all nighter or so and stayed up, but there's different scenarios and requirements, like a couple of days of being up completely. Like you probably mm-hmm. have no idea what oh, yeah. you feel and what you're going to do and how quickly you can just fall asleep, you know, probably in two yeah. seconds there. Oh, I mean, I have stories from my own deployment. So, mm-hmm. um, ironically, so we, uh, deployed to help, um, study sleep cycles of the first armored division. So they're like, they call them old iron signs. It's the, uh, the, the tankers of the army. Uh, so we, we followed them uh, during the uh, Syrian missile crisis down there. And the entire month I was down there, like I didn't sleep at all. I mean, cause if we weren't out with them during training, uh, we were sleeping in this bunker, like next to a flight path. So mm-hmm. if I did try to get asleep, I, only get like two or three hours before everything would shake from the planes coming in at night. Um, but during this one training exercise we did with them, I was awake for almost 70 hours straight. And I used, you know, the caffeine gum, like I tried to like um, dose with it, but mm-hmm. I actually did some dumb shit during that time. <laughs> I, so I was at the time dating this woman named Jess and it just so happened my army career manager. So like she, she's the woman who manages my army career. Her name is Jess. And we still laugh about it to this day. I, by accident, emailed her instead of my uh, girlfriend, Jess at the time and said like, I loved her and all this stuff. And she's like, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> did that. And then Right after that, we went on that mission with them was when we redeployed to the States. Um, and I spent the night with my PhD mentor and her husband. And I literally fell asleep at the dinner table. Like we were eating. And the next thing I know, I just, she said I was asleep for like three hours. I literally fell asleep mid-conversation for like three hours. That's crazy. So it's, I mean, sleep deprivation is wild things to your body. And I can tell you that firsthand. Yeah. I'm sure I want to go back to that app. You said peak alert that you said. Mm-hmm. So with that, if you did that, it's, it's telling you like when uh, an appropriate just dosage of caffeine would work yep. to get you up to your best cognitive performance. Yep. So that's um, it's based on years and years and years of strategic caffeine dosing studies we've done at Walter Reed. Um, so basically what we do in these studies is, we bring people in, they do like baseline, you know, sleep eight hours a night. And now we're going to sleep deprive you from 40 hours all the way up to 86, 96 hours, which again, seems ridiculous, but I was awake for 70 hours. Soldiers do it all the time. Um, and during that time, every four to six hours, we would give you caffeine gum. Um, reason caffeine gum is because it, it allows for like a very controlled response. Um, okay especially since it's just traveling through your saliva up into your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what the, the model, the um, algorithm is based on is these years of years of data of these studies. Um, but yeah, so we took that and then we put it in a real world working with like real world units mm-hmm. in order to validate it and then mass mm-hmm. produce it. Yeah. 
So with somebody who's sleep deprived, like let's say if they're on deployment or so, do naps do anything like quick oh, short yeah. bursts? Do they? Yeah. So uh, that's why we call it like tactical napping time. Um, mm-hmm. Because, it, you know, when you think about sleep deprivation, it's plus or minus, right? If you're loading up on sleep prior to sleep deprivation, you're reducing the deficit. Mm-hmm. If you're already in a deficit, any little sleep is going to get you out of the red. Um, it's basically like, and I think uh, Matt Walker talks about this too. It's just simple transactional units between wake and sleep. Right. Um, that, that's really how the body sees it. Just like with working out, right? Work, like with work to rest ratios. Gotcha. Okay. So with, I mean, as far as strategy for improving sleep, like obviously if you're in the military, that's one thing with deprivation, but somebody who is trying to just improve their, their sleep strategy and just their work. I know there's a lot of different things that people have talked about of, you know, dimming lights, like blue light and stuff. Is there specific things that you found that really are the best things for people who want to really get into a better sleep routine? Yeah. So light is the light is the answer. So, um, you know, if you're like, I don't know if you live up North or down South, but up North, that's why it's so critical during the the long, uh, winter nights to, uh, look at blue light and just to like Mm -hmm. blast yourself with sunlight as early as possible in the morning. So your body knows, Hey, I need to be awake. Uh, but it's also the very same reason why at night you should minimize light at whatever cost. Um, from obviously TVs to phones to even dimming the lights in your house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason for that, and again, I know Matt Walker talks about this in his book, is it's called dim light melatonin onset. Uh, so being in the presence of dim light, whether it's at night or during the day, stimulates the release of melatonin. Um, and uh, that's honestly how we manipulate sleep in the lab. So a lot of the times when we're doing these sleep studies, we put people on a non 24 hour day. Uh, sometimes we call it a, a Martian day and how we manipulate them to sleep in the middle of the day when their clocks really don't want to is mm. dimming the lights. So, uh, huh. it, it is the most effective stimulus. That is okay. Yeah. I'm in, I'm in upstate New York over here. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 So we just finished a long winter of very dark and stuff. So getting outside and getting that sunlight right off the bat was so vital because it's pitch black at four o'clock in here. So what about like the things like, um, like hot shower beforehand and stuff like that? Uh, do those things really apply as well? Yes. So, um, you know, I always just thought that was like, an anecdote, just like uh, they say, drink a warm glass of milk. Right. But there's actually scientific evidence for both. So the reason why a hot shower and not a cold shower is in response to being hot, your body temperature is going to drop. Mm. And so having a lower core body temperature to start sleep is really good because the lower your core body temperature, the more your brain is going to be programmed to be in a more restorative state of sleep. Um, warm milk, sort of same concept, like it will actually cool down your core body temperature, but also there are sleep promoting proteins that recently have been isolated and and synthesized and, uh, just cow's milk. That's warm, uh, that you don't get like the, those proteins can't be activated Mm -hmm. because they're heat activated proteins basically. Um, but they are, and they're sleep promoting when you drink warm milk. Gotcha. Huh. Interesting. So I've never done the warm milk. I've done the hot shower yeah. before. Yeah. So. I mean, I guess I have in like chai tea. I don't think I'd ever just drink a glass of warm milk. That seems kind of nasty. Yeah. But. I think, I think maybe a little bit in some, in some tea, some chamomile tea yeah, sounds good yeah, from there. Exactly. So, yeah. I got one of those, um, I got one of those alarm clocks that is like a sunlight alarm clock. Yes from there. And that thing is phenomenal. It's like, it just Mm -hmm. slowly increases the light in the room. And I got to tell you, like, I have felt a much bigger difference in the morning versus the iPhone alarm of like blasting in your ear, you know, at the the going. So that has been a huge thing that I found as far as waking up has been a huge thing. No, that's awesome. And it's like people like where you live up North, like that's the stuff you need. And Honestly, that stuff's been clinic, clinically uh, shown to improve sleep too. Um, mm-hmm. Cause the original, there, there's probably like a lot of 
you know, cheaper knockoff companies now, but the original company was Philips Respironics, which is like the big clinical player in, in sleep medicine. And mm-hmm. they're the ones who actually developed that concept. And they yeah. did a whole slew of uh, clinical studies to show its efficacy. Oh, wow. Oh, um, Allison, this has been so interesting. This has been awesome talking to you. Um, I love the oh, work yeah. that you're, I love the work that you're doing with everything. Um, you know, it's so interesting to really hear the science behind a lot of this stuff, you know, rather than just the theory. So I really appreciate you taking the time today. This has been awesome. Oh, of course. Absolutely. absolutely. I, can, I mean, I've been doing this for almost 20 years, so I can it, talk your ear off about anything and everything about sleep. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. We just even dove into just a few. We'll definitely get back on and we'll, we'll go into a part two here, but um, your book, it's called Meathead, right? Yep. Meathead Unraveling the Athletic Brain. And you can Perfect. buy it on Amazon. Awesome. And if anybody else is interested in the work that you're doing, is there a specific place to direct our listeners? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you can do a Google Scholar search. Um, all the you know, all the wealth of awesome studies our dream team has done is, is linked there. Um, I t- tend to post some time to time on my Instagram page, Doc, mm-hmm. Jock, CZZ. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. Perfect. And then, awesome. of course, listen to this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. No, again, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Uh, keep doing everything that you're doing. I think it's so awesome. And um, I'm sure we'll talk again at some point. Soon. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure, Mike. Listeners, thank you so much. If you want to follow Dr. Allison, you know where to do so. I'll catch you on the next one. Peace. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you found some great value here. And if you like this episode, please drop a comment and leave us a five-star rating and review. It does more to build the show than you can imagine. And do not forget to check out and join the Strength Connection Facebook group. In this group, I share the biggest takeaways and lessons from these amazing conversations, as well as training and strength tips for pursuing mastery and fulfillment in life. This group is filled with individuals looking to take full control over their strength, and it's the perfect space to explore new ideas and to share your journey. And you'll also get exclusive access to the Strength Connection Mastery Seminars. It's a deep dive into the physical, mental, and spiritual training that you can begin using immediately. So do not wait. Go now. Seriously, go. I much love to you. Thank you so much, and I'll catch you on the next one.